we're just going to continue um, working our way through Romans, and I'll just ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 and from verse 1. So Romans chapter 4 from verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believed but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham our father had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that he was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. 
the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Thank God for the word that he gives us and pray that he'll give us that instruction we need to live our lives to glorify him. So let's just pray. Father, we come to you again. We come to your word and we bow before its authority and ask that you'll give us the clarity of mind that will enable us to to pick out, to grasp from your word the truths that are relevant that apply to us today. Lord, be with us. Help us to seek you that we might know your power and live for your glory. Amen. The principal of Spurgeon's College during the time I, I trained for the ministry was Dr. Raymond Brown. Now, Dr. Brown is a, a wonderful man and he's a real biblical scholar. As I looked around my bookshelves just uh, during the week, I found an Old Testament introduction written by him, a commentary on Nehemiah and a commentary on one of the most difficult of all the New Testament books to to get to grips with and understand the book of Hebrews. So he's a man who knows his Bible. But above all, Dr. Brown is a church historian. That's what his qualifications are. And he got a PhD from Cambridge and some other obscure Cambridge qualification that's above a PhD. But I'll never forget a comment that he made to me on more than one occasion. And it's along the lines that in the history of the church, we can usually find the lessons that will enable us to deal with the problems that the church is facing today. And you know, time and again, during my time in ministry, I've seen that piece of advice proven to be true. I have seen different teachings, different controversies faced by the church. And as as you've looked back, it's actually, it's been the same old errors, the same old arguments that have been repeated again and again, right down through church history, which I think all goes to illustrate that the devil's basic tactics really don't change all that much. That he is remarkably cunning and persistent, but also remarkably devoid of imagination and of creativity. Which, of course, are qualities that actually intrinsically are rooted in God. You see, there is little, next to nothing that we face in the church or in our lives that is new. The Words of the writer of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9, I think are so relevant and true. And he says, what has been will be again. What has done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. So I would agree with Dr. Brown. And I would suggest that that when we're faced with what perhaps seems to be some new teaching as a church, or maybe a a situation that confuses and concerns and perplexes us, then a good secondary test to that of the Word of God 
is has this teaching, has a similar type of situation been faced by the church before? What were the results of it then? How did the church then react to it? How did they handle it? Now, it's something along these lines that we find Paul involved here in Romans 4. For he's just stated in a, a glorious paragraph we looked at last week, Romans 3, 21 to 26, the Christian doctrine, the Christian teaching of justification by faith. That is that we have been granted by God's grace a new status, a new standing before him through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, now we know that, that many of Paul's Jewish contemporaries had no time for this teaching. They saw it as some kind of newfangled notion that was totally at odds with the true faith of Judaism. With their faith given to them by God, bound up in the Old Testament. Something that had then been conjured up by the fertile imagination of men like Paul rather than given by God. So what we have here in Romans 4 is, is Paul's way of dealing with this. As he seeks here to demonstrate that justification by faith, a new righteous standing in God's sight by faith, that this is no new thing, that it might never previously perhaps have been so clearly and forcibly stated before, but that the roots of this teaching are there to be seen in God's word, in the Old Testament, entrusted to the Jews as its guardians. And the way he proves this is by using as his example that the life history of two of the great heroes of the Jews, primarily Abraham, their greatest patriarch, but also David, their greatest king. From their lives, he demonstrates that justification by faith has always, in fact, been God's only way of salvation. And that God's intention was always that ultimately both Jews and Gentiles be welcomed into his presence on that basis. Now, as Paul traces through four of the, the major events, mainly in Abraham's life, he presents to, to his first readers aspects of the Bible's teaching that perhaps had gone unnoticed or had been ignored by them, and, and he shows them its practical relevance. So I don't think that too much of what I, I bring to you, share with you now from God's Word, will be especially new or surprising to many of you. But, you know, as we apply this to our lives... I think perhaps some of us will be surprised at just how practically relevant, how applicable what we find here actually is to us. So using Abraham's example, what does Paul tell us then about justification? That new righteous standing that's ours before God. First he tells us that it's not by works. And here as he, he does this, Paul pushes two buttons that would have got the attention straight away of his fellow Jews. First, he calls Abraham 
our forefather. And in fact, the phrase according to the flesh, I think, should actually be included there. But so he's reminding the Jews then of something that they took very great national pride in. That they were the physical descendants of the great Abraham. So he gets them then to take their stand on what they feel for them is firm ground. That they follow in the footsteps of Abraham. Little does he know that as Paul gets them to do this, he's preparing to shake that ground under their feet. And also, we see later, to open up who Abraham's ancestors actually are in a way that will astound them. The second button Paul pushes is Scripture. Verse 3 says, what does the Scripture say? He brings them to the Word of God. For you see, the Jews took their pride in being a people of the Word of being the custodians of Scripture, being a people who at least in theory claim to be dedicated to living their lives under the authority of God's Word. That's where they take their stand. But again, Paul is ready to shake that ground. And he, he does just that as he then quotes to them scripture here that proves that their forefather Abraham, the one they claimed to be descended and devoted to following, that he, in fact, was not made right with God, was not brought into a righteous standing with God by his works, by his good deeds, but rather that this was made his by faith and by faith alone. Genesis 15, 16. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now what this text relates to is, you know, with an old childless man, Abraham, with an old barren wife, Sarah, where he was given in his old age, almost 100 years old, the incredible promise by God that he would have descendants as many as the stars in the heavens. And Abraham believed. And this led to God crediting, this led to God reckoning righteousness to Abraham. Now, if we add into this the little sidebar that's there about David's situation, where we're told that David, a man who sinned so greatly in his life, rejoices hearing God's forgiveness. A quote taken from Psalm 32, 1 and 2 that really covers sin in its every sense, that is transgressions, lawlessness, that means the stepping over of a, a known boundary, and sin, that is failures, meaning falling short repeatedly of a known standard. All of this, we're told, is not credited against David because of his faith. And you know, that, that term credit is a... A key term here, it's a, a term that's taken from the financial, from the, the business sector of the ancient world. And the idea basically is, is of a great heavenly accounts ledger. Now for many people it's hard to put these two together, heaven and accounts, but that's what we're talking about. It's a great heavenly accounts ledger. And on one side of this ledger there's a long, long list of names, and it is a long list, for on it 
are the names of every single human being who's ever lived. And under each of their names, there's a list of the debits. There's a list of the debts that they owe. Their sins. And you know, for all of us, it is a long list. But if we concentrate just on the, the Abraham page, his list of debits is just about as long as anybody else. But then, on the credit side, there is a huge credit entry. Dated Genesis 15, verse 6. That clears all his debts. So we wonder, where does this credit come from? It doesn't seem to relate to anything that Abraham has done. It doesn't seem to relate to any work that he's done. Then you look a little bit closer. And you see that this payment came as a gift from God when Abraham believed him. Now you you might wonder then, is this possible? How can God give such a gift that in one go can wipe out all this debt, all this sin? Again, the answer comes when you go just that little bit more close in. And you examine it and you see that this gift is in fact the righteousness of Jesus. You see that as we put our faith in God's grace, he gives us in exchange the righteousness of Christ. You know, it's a little bit like being given a gift and then when you give it and open it up, you actually find in the box, as well as the gift, a note telling you where your next gift is. Because, you see, the gift of Christ's righteousness is a double gift. It is a double crediting to our account. In that not only has negatively all our sin been dealt with by Christ's death for us, but also positively we do have this new righteous standing before God. We do now, by faith, stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is our standing before God now as as we put our trust in Jesus Christ. This is how we stand before God in heaven in Christ. We have been made righteous. We have been justified in Christ. With this new righteous nature that, that we now have and the gratitude and love that we have in our hearts, surely for the God who's given everything, done everything for us, this crying out, this demanding that we now live our lives on earth in line as far as God enables us with this holy righteous standard, in line with the holiness, the righteousness of God. This is true for us, but it's also true for Abraham and all our other forefathers in the faith. It's true for them because this is what the Bible says. Genesis 15, 6 again. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And last time we we looked at Romans in Romans 3, 25 and 26, Paul told us, How this is possible, why this is possible, 
Why? That, that God was able to hold back from acting against men in their sin. That he was able to give men and women in the past who came to him, trusted only in his grace and his love for salvation. Why God? How was he able to do this? Why? Because he knew from eternity that he was going to act in Christ. He was going to act in the cross of Christ in such a way as to meet the demands of his holiness and justice and so pave the way for his mercy and grace to freely flow. See again Romans 3, 25 and 26. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice in the present time so as to be just and to be the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So Abraham, David, all our forefathers in the faith right through the Old Testament were justified not by works. No one has ever been made right with God by their works, by their deeds. No, they and we are only justified by faith in the grace of God. That grace revealed supremely in the cross of Jesus Christ. So first, using Abraham's example, Paul, we've said, underlines that justification is not by works. He continues the same line of argument and goes on to tell us that justification also is not by sacraments. Now, I'm going to try and, and get quickly to the heart of, of Paul's argument. You haven't got a lot of time to spend and then just spell out its application to us. Now, now the basic situation to summarise is that the Jews put enormous emphasis on circumcision. They believed that this was their distinguishing mark as the people of God. They showed that they were the special recipients of God's blessing and favour. So every Jewish boy, and this practice continues right up to today, was circumcised when he was eight days old. And any Gentile who converted to Judaism had to be circumcised regardless of what age they were. But Paul's teaching was that, that believing Gentiles were acceptable to God whether or not they were circumcised. And this was a teaching that caused great offence to many Jews and even to many converted Christian Jews. With all of this leading to, to controversy in the church and, and culminating in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 where Paul's position won the day. But you see, it would seem that, that to some degree at least this controversy is still lingering on. And here Paul is concerned that this might gain a foothold in Rome. So he wants to make it as clear as he can, again by using the example that every Jew would acknowledge, the example of Abraham, that justification, righteousness, is not by circumcision. That is not by sacrament. It is by faith, faith in Christ, 
and it is open to all who put their trust in him, Jew or Gentile. But you see, he asks, he gets again into the word of God. He asks them, the Jews, what came first? Abraham's justification and all the blessings that came from that or his circumcision. Now the answer's there. It's there in the Bible to be seen. His justification, as we've said, came in Genesis 15. His circumcision in Genesis 17, at least 14 years. And some rabbis reckon 29 years later. Now, let's get things clear here. Let's make it clear. This doesn't mean that circumcision was unimportant. Paul's not saying that. He certainly certainly saw his circumcision as important. What he's saying is make sure, though, that you see circumcision for what it actually is. It's a sign that identifies the justified people of God. It's a seal that authenticates his people as the justified people of God. But don't get the sign, the seal mixed up. Don't get it confused with the thing that it's designed to point to and that is more important by far. That is justification. A right standing with God that only comes by faith and faith alone. So you see, we've got to get the order right in terms of timing and importance. Justification by faith comes first. In every sense, it is first. And then the sign and the seal of that comes next. The implication of this that, that, Paul's drop, that Paul draws out then is that, that Abraham is the father of all who believe. Both Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised. He is because what matters is our faith. What matters is faith in a gracious God. And the signs and seals of that are important of that faith, but they are secondary. An application of this that I just want to share with you is that as Christians, God has given us also our signs and our seals. He's given us our symbols, our sacraments, because that's actually what a sacrament is. And they're given to remind us of what lies at the heart of our faith. They are given to remind us of what our faith is all about. So baptism for us roughly roughly equates to circumcision for the Jews and the Lord's Supper to their Passover. The two equate. Now I believe that baptism is important. I really do. I believe that the Lord's Supper is important. And I believe that the Lord makes it very clear in the New Testament that these are for the people of faith. That faith is supposed to be, is at the heart of these sacraments. So, say with baptism, I believe that it is the seal of our coming to faith. And I believe that it symbolizes what our faith is all about. It's a symbol of that. That we die to sin, and that's symbolized by going under the water. And that with Christ, as he rose from the dead, so we rise, we come out of that water, symbolizing new life in Christ. Now, for me, I've got to be honest, I find it very difficult to see how anything other than 
baptism of a believer can fit the bill here, and I find it hard to see how anything other than baptism by total immersion can really adequately reflect the symbolism that we find in the Bible. But, you know, although I might disagree with other Christians about issues like this and all sorts of other issues, I might disagree with them. Yet I will not, I should not, fall out with, refuse to share fellowship with, refuse to to worship with someone with whom I am in agreement regarding the fundamentals of the faith. And the fundamental is that we are saved by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died for our sin. That's the faith that justifies us. That's the faith that makes us a Christian. That's the faith that brings us into a new righteous relationship with Christ. That's the faith that brings us into fellowship with Abraham and that should bind us in fellowship with one another. So using Abraham's example, Paul has shown us that justification is not by works, not by sacrament, and so he continues that it's not by the law. And I'm going to be, again, as brief as I can, just to clarify and summarize what Paul's saying. So first, Paul says that the promise was received not through the law, but by faith. Now, the promise that he's referring to, I think, must in this context be the promise of Genesis 15, verse 5, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. But this promise, this promise that meant everything to the Jews, and that Paul certainly saw as being fulfilled in Jesus, when the gospel was taken worldwide, this promise is clearly, I believe, tied again to Abraham's faith, not to the law, which Paul spells out in Galatians 3.17, was not actually given. The law wasn't given until 400 years later. So you see, the promise, the promise of the limitless blessing of God is again tied in with faith, rather than in some way being the result of obedience to the law. So you see, again, driven by their sinful pride, the Jews got things wrong. You see, they wanted the blessing. They wanted the promise. They wanted their justification and standing before God. They wanted this to be the result of their obedience to the law. They wanted it to be something they could take pride in. They wanted it to be about something related to what they had done and who they were as people. And what this led to was them repeatedly getting things wrong, misinterpreting the Bible, and then making a mess of their spiritual life. Because as Paul here has again and again made clear, the basis of true spirituality, the basis of a right relationship and right standing with God has always been faith, has always been about men and women putting their trust in God, in the goodness and grace of God. And you see, so the 
the law was, was then given. Once we'd established that relationship by faith, the law was then given in order to guide us, in order to show us how to live our life, in order to please God. Now, if you said it in that context, the law is a good thing. But take it out of that context. Try to make obedience to the law the means of our salvation, and then the law becomes a curse. It's a curse. Because we'll always fall short in our obedience to God. We'll never get it totally right. The law will never justify us. Rather, all it will do is it will show us again and again that we fall short. It will uncover our sins and transgressions and our unworthiness. So justification is not by works, not by sacrament, not by law, but rather justification is only by faith. And this is set out for us in the second half of verse 17, right on to the end of this passage. Now again, I need to summarise things dramatically, but I think the thing that comes across is as we remember Abraham's faith in the context that's described here, God's promise that he and Sarah would have a child in their old age and that this child would be the father of many nations. It seems to me the thing that, that comes across is, is the reasonableness of Abraham's faith. Now, now faith isn't, isn't something that many people see in terms of being involved in any kind of partnership with reason. More often, people talk about faith out there in the world around as something that's in opposition to reason. You've got to kind of part your reason if you're going to have faith. But I think that's wrong. It's so wrong. For faith should always have a reasonable, rational basis. The difference comes in, though, in that working from that basis, faith goes beyond reason. It goes beyond it. Because think about it. It is reasonable, is it not, to trust a trustworthy person. Somebody's proved themselves to you again and again in the past. It's reasonable. Well, nobody is more trustworthy than God. So you see, Abraham knew God. He'd experienced God in his life. God had protected him and blessed him. And so he was prepared to trust him. He looked at his situation. He knew how unlikely humanly parenthood seemed to be. But then you see, God came into the picture. Faith came into the picture. He had God had the promise of God, and unlikely as what God said seemed, Abraham trusted God. And there seem to be two, two features of God's being and power that, that really touched Abraham and affected him here. And that is the fact, verse 17, that he is the God who gives life to the dead, that is, he is the God of resurrection power, and that he is the God who calls, all, calls things that are not as though they are. That is, that he is the creator God who is able to bring his creation out 
of nothingness. You see, that's the kind of God that Abraham had faith in. Even before the resurrection, he believed in a creator God of resurrection power. And it was this faith that led him, that drove him, that enabled him to live and to serve God and to be our forefather in the faith. And in the same way, we today, you know, we're here as a church of, of God's people and this is a church with a long history here. And there have been low points along the way, inevitably there will be, but there have been great highs. Have there not? Great highs in the past history of this church. Let me tell you, I honestly believe that the best days of this church can be, should be, in the future. In the future. And they will be if we are ready to go forward in faith. Not to ignore the challenges, not to ignore the problems and difficulties, but taking them into account. If we are ready to let faith direct us into the future, if we are ready to be, have faith as the one that dictates our agenda for the future, then why would we not believe that God can do greater things among his people in the future than he has in the past? You know, the world around us has no faith and little hope. We have great faith and we should have great hope because that faith and hope is based in a great God. This is our God. Let's give ourselves to him once more. Father, we just remember again that Abraham is our father in the faith. And that as he was led by you and blessed by you and saw his inheritance come to, to birth through your grace, Lord, so you want to lead us and bless us. You want to take us on into great fruitfulness. Lord, may we be determined to be justified by faith and to live by faith. Lord, take your people forward into your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.